Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Happy New Year. Got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know we've been doing the last couple of years just a Bible reading plan as a church. This last year we were just reading one chapter a week, just reading it over and over. Then we talk about it here on Sunday morning. This is the last uh, chapter for the reading plan for um, 2021, even though we're in 2022 today. Should have been reading this this past week. Um, for those of you that want them, and I would encourage all of you that call Mercy Hill home to grab one. There are these little bookmarkers out at the Connect table um, out front by the doors. This has the reading plan for 2022 uh, that we'll be reading and then uh, using in our small churches, discipleship groups, uh, and of course preaching through here on Sunday morning uh, as the Lord allows. Um, but please pick one of those, one of those up and and get into the Word. You've heard me say this before, but all transformation uh, in our lives, it is supernatural. God does it, but it's also not mysterious. It, it's, it, it's the mingling of the Word and the Spirit in your life. That's it. Okay? That's what you got to do. You got to get into His Word, and you got to ask the power of the Spirit to use the Word um, to change your heart. Uh, and He will. And He will. So, so do that. I can't encourage you enough to do that. Isaiah chapter 53 is 53. However, this is um, a passage that uh, we need to pick up at the end of chapter 52. Uh, this is one of four passages in the book of Isaiah, and I referred to this last week, that is referred to as the servant songs. It is, Isaiah speaks this 700 years before Jesus will come, uh, and especially today, we, it's as if Isaiah is writing this from the foot of the cross, seeing it happen, but it's 700 years before it actually happened. And we need to pick this up in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And then we'll read through the end of chapter 53. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was, not, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned aside, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered 
that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then, you don't need to turn here, but I want to read one other passage from the book of Acts, chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to the Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for today. Thanks for today. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from your word, and that you would do that miracle again where you cause us to see you and to savor you and to trust you and to love you and to believe you and to rest in you. And that our lives would bear fruit for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <coughs> so this is definitely a mountaintop, uh, a, a summit um, of the scriptures. All scriptures are God-breathed, they are, they are all equally uh, inspired, but there are, there are mountaintops, there are precipices, um, high points that, uh, that deserve to be honored in a very special way, and this is without question one of them. Um, many godly men throughout history have said very many strong things about the importance of Isaiah chapter 53. Martin Luther said it, it should absolutely be committed to memory by every single Christian. Um, others have said that it is the most central, the deepest, the loftiest thing that the Old Testament, that Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved. Uh, it has been called the fifth gospel. 
Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, the four books at the beginning of the New Testament, um, are these accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on the earth and ultimately died and, and how he ultimately died and rose, rose again. Um, this also is an account, in some sense, of Jesus' life here on the earth and the suffering and the rejection and the agony that he went to uh, and that he went through um, for us. And there's a lot that could be said about it. And so it's been a little bit of a struggle this past week to figure out exactly what all to hit in it because we just don't have time for everything. And I can't commend it to you enough to actually memorize it and to stay in it and to have this passage of Scripture be central to your life uh, and theology if it's, if it's not already. Um, but there are, are, are two central ideas that are just kind of really one idea together that I want to focus in on here this morning. And the first one is, is probably the most obvious, and that is this idea of suffering. Um, you can't read this without, you know, and just asking the question, like, like what is this about? Well, it's about suffering. Um, there are very graphic, graphic um, details and images here. If you caught it in verse 14 of chapter 52, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind that Jesus was so brutally beaten that he didn't even look like a human being. He didn't even look like a man. You'll see the idea of being slaughtered like a sheep in chapter 53. Uh, verse 7. But it's not just, in many other places, but it's not just the idea of suffering. It's the idea that he suffered as our substitute. The servant, the servant of God that appears in these servant songs at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. Here the suffering servant, but not just suffering randomly. Suffering as our substitute. And I want to spend pretty much all of our time this morning talking about the importance of us understanding this if we call ourselves disciples, that Jesus suffered as our substitute in our place. It's unfortunate, but in many, many places today, especially in American evangelicalism and all that calls itself the church, this idea that is at the very center, at the very heart of all that Christ came to do, to die as our substitute, it is not only not understood and not grasped, but it's actually rejected. People have written things in our time that I would consider to be some of the most blasphemous things that you could ever possibly say. That, they've, it, that in speaking of Christ dying as our substitute, uh, two authors have said that, um, that if we think that Christ died as our substitute and that God is the one that ultimately did this to him, although it says that explicitly in verse 10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that they call that nothing more than cosmic child abuse. I consider that statement to be completely blasphemous. We needed a substitute, folks. We needed a substitute. And if Jesus had not 
done what he did as our substitute on the cross, as we're going to look at this morning, we would have absolutely no hope. Um, And it is of the utmost importance that we grasp this. This idea of substitution, and we'll come back to Isaiah 53, but this, this was God's idea. This was God's idea. And I want to trace it quickly throughout the entirety of the scriptures to try to briefly show us that this is not just some peripheral idea. If you call yourself a Christian, then you need to understand that at the center, at the core, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a believer, to know that you're going to heaven when you die, is because Jesus died as your substitute. He died in your place. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created everything, and it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. You hear that over and over and over again, and he creates man, and it's very good, and he gives it all to man. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, all the trees, and all the animals, all of creation. It was all man's. But of this one tree, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And folks, God never lies. He never lies. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they did. And we've talked about this before, but death in the Bible, um, which is the definition of death that we should be working from, it's not just ceasing to exist. Exist. Death is separation. And Adam and Eve experienced that on many levels. They experienced relational separation. They were ashamed in front of each other. They experienced spiritual separation from their father. They hid from him. When God came looking for them, eventually they, they did die, but that death, for all of us that trust in the work of God, is not ultimately death. It's not eternal separation for those who've trusted in Jesus. Because, and you see a pointer to this, this first pointer, this first example of substitute in the Bible, because in Genesis 3.21, there's this little detail that's easy to skip over. But if you remember, Adam and Eve were hiding from the Lord and they had made fig leaves because they thought fig leaves would work. Doesn't work. In Genesis 3.21 it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. And there's this first reference that there needed to be the shedding of blood. So get this, God said in the day you eat it, you shall surely die, and they were separated, experienced that death on some level, but there was another death that occurred. The death of an animal in their place and created covering for them. You see this theme again, and and what this is, this is the idea of progressive revelation, that as you read throughout the scriptures, you get an idea that we see early on in the book of Genesis, early on in the scriptures, that it's just in seed form, but you see it expanded as you read the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 22, this is now many, many years later from the garden, but you see God speaking to Abraham. And in Genesis 22, he says to Abraham, 
It says that after these things, God tested him, and, Abraham sa- and, God, and he said to, to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. A little while later, down in verse 9 of chapter 22, it says, and when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order to in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For, no, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, if you've been around church for any period of time, maybe you've heard this, it's literally Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Is that God tested Abraham to offer up his son, his only son, whom he loved. First mention of love, by the way, in the Bible, of a father to a son. But in the end, that's not what God needed because it wouldn't have accomplished anything. There needed to be a substitute. And he provided this ram later on, several hundred years later, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Um, God is delivering his people from Egypt. He sent many plagues, and now the final one is that the firstborn son of every household is going to die unless they have the blood over the doorposts of their home. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that in the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can make, count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Jumping down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, that the very presence of God and judgment was going to pass through the entire land. And here it doesn't matter if you're an Egyptian or an Israelite, because all men are sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there was one hope, was the blood over your home, was the blood over the doorposts of your home. You see, it teased out even more in Leviticus chapter 16. Again, after God brings the people of Israel out, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he gives them the law, he gives this to Moses. There are the Ten Commandments, the moral law, but there's also the Levitical law. Again, pointing all ultimately to Jesus. And here, speaking of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, God says this, it says, Then he shall 
kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. This is inside the veil of the temple in the Holy of Holies. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. If you jump down to verse 19 of Leviticus chapter 16, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. It's this ceremony that the high priest, there's only one high priest and only once a year, on the Day of Atonement would enter into the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God dwelt in the Old Testament. And he would offer the blood of a lamb for the sins of the people. And this sprinkling, I don't know if you caught this or not, but back in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, it says, So he shall sprinkle many nations. It's a reference to this, that Jesus as our great high priest, but also as our sacrifice. And the high priest in Leviticus was only for the sins of the nation of Israel. But here it says that in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, that Jesus will sprinkle many nations. That it was his will from before the foundation of the world to gather a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, under heaven, for himself, through the blood. There was another goat as well back in Leviticus chapter 16. Um, They needed another goat because the first one had died. But more imagery here. In Leviticus chapter 16, in verse 20, it says, And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel. So there was a transfer. There was a substitution that was happening here. The first goat had died, and Aaron had sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. But now there's another goat, and he lays his hands on him and confesses all the sins of the people. And in doing that ceremony that God, again, this was God's idea, as a way to save his people because they needed a substitute. The sins of the people were transferred to that goat, and then the goat was immediately taken out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. This, again, it was an image of what our sins deserve, that we deserve to be alienated from God. We deserve to live in the wilderness all the days of our life, away from anything good, where nothing good grows, where there is no life. But the goat was the substitute for what we deserved. Continuing on there in Leviticus 16, it says, And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Jumping to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, you get divine commentary on some of these ceremonial laws that we've been reading about here, especially in Leviticus In Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That all the way back in the garden, when God said, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve deserved to be dropped dead right there, but God made provision for a substitute. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He goes on in Hebrews chapter 9. says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, in other words, not into the Old Testament temple that Aaron and Moses went into, or the, or the tabernacle, rather, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood of his own. Again, the high priest had to do this year after year because they kept on sinning and because the blood of goats could never be enough. For then he would have to had, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as at its appointed, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. He was our substitute. Again, looking back at Isaiah chapter 53, look at verses 4 through 6. I'll read it again. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We didn't value it. We didn't understand what he was doing. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We are the ones that have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you understand the importance of Jesus Christ as your substitute this morning? Amen. Again, in John chapter 1, this is why, you remember, you talked about the, John the Baptist a few weeks ago and how his, his birth and his ministry was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 when we preached on that a few weeks ago as we've been going through the book of Isaiah here for the last month or so. And John the Baptist was going to be this voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, you, you, this one that was prophesied hundreds of years earlier, John the Baptist, here he is. He, he's now here. And Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry. And here's, here's the voice crying in the wilderness. What does the voice say? Here's what the voice says. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he, being John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, John's with two of his disciples, down in verse 35 and 36, and it says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And, and, and I, want, I want us to get, try to understand what I'm saying here, folks, is that there's a lot of things John could have said, and he did say other things, but he could have said, Behold the King, the great leader that we need to lead us. Behold the great moral example, the great teacher who's going to teach us how to live and show us how to live. And yeah, Jesus did all that, but all those things would not have been enough if he was not our substitutionary lamb. The one that died in our place. The one that took on himself the wrath of God. Jesus did not die to ransom us from the devil. Yes, the devil was defeated on the cross. He died to ransom us from the wrath of God. 
The primary thing that we are saved from is the wrath of God. I understand that there are a lot of issues represented here this morning, including my own life. But if you know Jesus as your Savior, our hope, our resting place, the place that we, that we don't just try to get to, but that we start from as believers, is that by far and away, the infinitely, most, the greatest issue in our life, despite all the other issues we may have, is that the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus. And we are made right with God through his sacrifice. And so we can say with confidence, you know, that that first question that I've been quoting to you guys lately from the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It is this, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus came and he died on the cross for my sins. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then there's the next line in that, in that old hymn. And the question this morning is, can you say this with sincerity? Where he says, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Again, the the theological significance of this is right at the very center. You can't get any more to the bottom than this understanding of Jesus as our substitute. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known, apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, i.e. Isaiah chapter 53, they bear witness to this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who's it for? For all who will just believe. For there's no distinction for all, Jew, Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, listen, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, let let me sit, I'm going to finish reading the passage here in a second, but let me just unpack this word propitiation, okay? Because it's not a word we use a lot. But substitution and propitiation, okay? Substitution would be if I stepped in and I died in Matt's place. You might think, well, man, what a noble thing, Eric, for for you to do that. Well, here's the thing. It wouldn't really accomplish anything in appeasing the wrath of God. I could be Matt's substitute, but I could not be his propitiation. Because I myself am a sinner that deserves punishment. There needed to be a spotless lamb. There needed to be a perfect, holy sacrifice. 
and only Jesus was that. And so not only was he our substitution, that he stepped in and he died for us, for all who will believe. But the idea of propitiation is that his substitution was satisfactory to the Father. And understand here, guys, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, you got to get this right in your head, because it, I know that it's, when, I'm, when we're talking about this, it's, it, it's easy to think of like, God is this, the Father is this big meanie, and Jesus says, no, I'll step in and I'll go, and you know, the Spirit's over there just you know, waiting for them to figure it out or whatever. This was all the plan of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, from all of eternity past. And when we're talking about satisfying the wrath of God, that God is not some madman flying off the handle in heaven, just waiting to grab a pound of flesh out of somebody. Back to Romans chapter 3, it says that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He was waiting in the Old Testament as the, as, the, as the ram and the sheep and the goats. They were offered year after year and time after time. It was God's forbearance waiting for the perfect sacrifice that all those sacrifices pointed to. It was to show his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were so committed to upholding their own glory and their own righteousness that God had to come and suffer the wrath of God on our behalf. You can know for certain this morning that the God whom we worship, who we sing about, and who we sing to, he is righteous. There is no unrighteousness in him. He was so willing to uphold his own righteousness that he came and died in our place. Jesus is our substitution. He's our propitiation, and again, it was in our place. We deserved it. We are the ones that all like sheep have gone astray. And again, that verse, you're like, oh, silly sheep. Yeah, we just, I wander astray sometime. Folks, our sin is wickedness. If you think about the deep pain in your life, the pain that maybe nobody else knows about, the pain in your soul, it is absolutely positively because of sin. Sin that either you committed or sin that was committed against you by another sinner. But we have all also committed sins against each other and caused pain in each other's life. Our sin is not cute. It is the reason why Jesus had to come and die. He is our substitute. Now, hopefully I've showed you that this was, 
This isn't just a periphery thing, but it's all through the Bible. Um, it's New Year's, the time for resolutions, right? The Bible doesn't really speak of New Year's resolutions, but you do see a resolution that the Apostle Paul made one time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the test. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, or I, I resolved, made a resolution. For I, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This was Paul's resolution. I want it to be our resolution. I want us to resolve in 2022 to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If it was a good resolution for Paul, it'll be a good resolution for us. There is a, I, we, have a, we have a group text thread with myself and the interns, and uh, it can get pretty crazy some days. I don't know if any of you guys are part of those text threads where it's like, you're like, oh my gosh, would you just stop? You know, like, I think Matt Beach the other day, he, he texts, he's like, I was gone for 30 minutes and I came back to 30 texts. Um, so it, it's one of those, we get going sometimes. But anyway, I had to go way back in the text thread and try to find this, but several, I think it was over, it was like a month or two ago, one of the guys had texted this little tweet from a guy named Burke Parsons, who I believe is on staff, he's a teaching fellow with Ligonier Ministries. But he, he, this was the little tweet that he sent out. Somewhat subjective, yet it's, it just has gotten so stuck in me. And the tweet was this, he said, The Protestant church is in greater need of reformation today than Roman Catholicism was in the 16th century. The Protestant, quotation marks, church, um, Big Eva, American evangelicalism, is in greater need of reformation today than Roman Catholicism was in the 16th century when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Um, that, that's somewhat subjective. I, you know, you could argue that, I suppose, but I've been thinking about that a lot. And I'm convinced that wherever the church needs reformed, wherever we need reformed, just in our local church at Mercy Hill, it is because we have forgotten about the cross. Wherever we get off, wherever we begin to wander, like the sinful sheep that we are, it is because we have forgotten what Jesus did on the cross. You read passages like this where he was marred beyond human semblance. And then you look at how much time, energy, and effort we can put into just putting on a show on Sunday mornings. And it should cause us to weep. Because we've forgotten about the cross. You listen to the messages and to the books that 
sit on most Christian bookstore shelves in our, and make the bestseller lists. And you look at all that they talk about, and it's almost like they've resolved to do the exact opposite of what Paul has done. Where Paul resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's almost as if as a culture we've resolved to know everything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Jesus didn't come because we needed a psychologist or more self-esteem. He came because we needed a substitute. He didn't come because we needed a roadmap to success. He came because we needed a substitute. He didn't come so that we could just do more um, cool acts of social justice that we could take pictures of and post on our social media page. He came because we needed a substitute. He didn't just come to give us more moralistic standards or to meet consumeristic felt needs. He came as our substitute to die in our place. And in everything else that we say, and yeah, we want to we work for justice, we want to help people, we want to feed the poor, we want to clothe the naked, we want to build houses for those that don't have them, we, we, we want to relieve all sorts of suffering, but especially eternal suffering, which is the primary suffering that Jesus came to solve by being our substitute. And if ever there was a day where the people of God needed to make this same resolution that Paul made to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It has got to be our day, is it not? And Christian, in all that you read, in all that you study, in all the podcasts that you listen to, in all the moody radio, in all the preaching, and man, I'm for it all, but do not neglect the cross. You know, they, they didn't understand it when he came. And for some reason, we, we still don't understand it now. And it shouldn't be. So when Jesus came the first time, you know, like he told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Peter rebukes him. Remember, that's now where he's, he calls Peter Satan. He's like, get behind me, Satan. Because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You know, he, he tells the disciples in, in Mark chapter 10, he says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That if you're going to be the greatest servant, that you need to meet the greatest need. The greatest need that we had was for somebody to be our substitute. And Jesus was the only one that could do it. Because he was the only one that could both be our substitute, but also our propitiation. And satisfy the righteous desire and standard of God. But, but we didn't understand it. It would be like, it'd be like when, uh, when, I, when I fell off the roof several years ago and broke my neck. You know, C4 and C5, they, won, they, they jumped over each other and C6 snapped off and it was just, just like a millimeter from my spinal cord. It was just the total grace of God, nothing else. And it, it would be the equivalent of, you know, so, well, let me back up. So when I'm, when I, when I'm laying there in the hospital initially, before I have my surgery, I, 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 need, I need a specialist. I need a neck, a back surgeon, a neurosurgeon that knows what he's doing in order to fix this, right? That is my greatest need. I might have other needs, but that need is primary in that moment. And it's like what we do, it'd be like the equivalent of me lying there with my broken neck, needing a, a neurosurgeon specialist to, to fix me. And they come in and 
And he begins talking to me about what he's going to do. And I go, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I don't care about my neck. I want you to go get me a dentist that specializes in teeth whitening. Like, what? Why are you concerned? Why are you concerned about that? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. The Jewish people said, just deliver us from the Romans. That wasn't their greatest need. Their greatest need was for a substitute. Your greatest need isn't to just get more self-esteem so that you can self-actualize and become all that you were meant to be, all that you, all that you want to become. Your greatest need is for a substitute to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. And Jesus met that need. That is the good news of the gospel. And the world needs to hear it now. Acts chapter 8, which I talked about at the very beginning. Why did I read that? Because I'm burdened that we understand it for us. I'm burdened that we don't live our lives striving to, and, 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 and worried and constantly anxious about all these other needs, and I know that they exist. But again, we'll meet those needs from the place of our greatest need already being met. And that is that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that eternity is secure, that heaven is ours because of Jesus. Amen? It's with that truth, it's with that hope, it's with that certainty that we face all those other needs. But not just for us, because guys, this is what the world needs to hear. This story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, he, he's an evangelist. This is not Philip, one of the twelve, but this is Philip who you read about in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the seven deacons, along with Stephen, that is chosen. Stephen is, uh, you know, stoned, but Philip is another one of these deacons, and he has the gift of evangelism. And he's been sharing the gospel in other places, but an angel of the Lord speaks to him, and he tells him to go down to a desert road, which does not make any sense. And Philip's like, I'm an evangelist. You know, send me to the crowd. Send me to the people. I'll tell them about Jesus. And the Spirit says, I want you to go down to where there is likely to be nobody. The desert road. Not even a town along the desert road. Just along the desert road. And just stand there. But he obeys. And he goes. And here comes this Ethiopian riding in his, his chariot. And this isn't, don't, don't have in mind here like Ben-Hur, you know, like racing around the Colosseum. He's just, you know, he's sitting down. It's a slow, uh, picture an Amish buggy, okay, if that helps. Very similar <laughs> contextualization. Um, anyway, here he comes, and the Spirit speaks to him again, verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he comes up alongside him as he's clip-clopping along in his buggy chariot. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And listen, listen to the Ethiopian's response. And again, this Ethiopian, he'd just been coming from Jerusalem. He, he, was, he was probably like a Jewish proselyte of some sort. There were other people outside the Jews that would come to Jerusalem and would, would kind of act a little bit on the, the revelation that they had from the Old Testament. They, would, you know, try, they wanted to become worshipers of this God, but they didn't understand fully. Cornelius is another example of this in Acts chapter 10. But anyway, it, here's his response in verse 31 to Philip's question. Do you understand what you're reading? And he was reading the text that we were reading this morning in Isaiah 53. 
He says, how can I unless someone guides me? That the Spirit sent Philip there to help him understand what he couldn't understand if someone didn't guide him in it. And here's the passage he'd been reading. It's, it's specifically verses 7 and 8 from Isaiah 53, but again, it's not a stretch at all to assume that he's been reading this whole chapter, this whole passage. And what he was reading was like a sheep was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asks Philip, who's he talking about? Who? Like he knows it's not a lamb. Like this, 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 it, it's imagery. This, this lamb that's led to the slaughter, this sheep to the slaughter. Like it, it, it's a person. Who is it? Is it Isaiah? Or is it someone else? And then verse 35. This is just one of the most beautiful verses. Then Philip opened his mouth, which is what you and I need to do. And beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And don't miss this. Beginning with that scripture. Philip wasn't like, well, that, that's okay, this slaughter part, this substitution part, this being marred beyond human semblance part. That's okay, but let's go over to Psalm 23. Because we like to put that on our coffee mugs and on our Thomas Kincaid wall paintings. Let me tell you about John 3.16. No, beginning with this verse, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is what? As our substitute. And folks, the world is filled, this is going to sound kind of weird, but the world is filled with Ethiopian eunuchs. The world is filled with people who do not know and do not understand that they need a substitute. And we are to be the Phillips that explain to them that, oh, yes, they do need a substitute. And you've got it in Jesus, if you'll just believe. How dare we? How dare we? How, how dare we? As a people, as a church, make it about self-help. How dare we make it about entertainment? How dare we Make it about practical life application leadership principles so that you can be a better leader on Monday morning. How dare we? Will you purpose, resolve, decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? in 2022. That's what I want to ask you. Worship team, you can come up. We'll close.
I want to. I want to say something. I, I. I know I've. You know. Maybe been stepping on our toes a little bit here this morning. But why stop now? Um, I want to say something that's probably going to initially offend you. But just hang, try to hang with me, okay? I'm warning you, okay? So don't be unwarned. I'm warning you. It's coming. Here it comes. Don't, look. Please don't assume that you're saved. Don't assume that because you grew up in church and you've heard this language of lamb and sacrifice, like, don't assume that. Hear me. There's, I'm not laying an extra burden on you. If, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the reality is, is that I talk to people frequently that think they're believers, and I just don't think they are. Because they've never understood that Jesus died as their substitute. Not as their life coach, not to be their cheerleader, not just to make them feel better about themselves or to make everything work out, but that he died to take the punishment that they deserve on him. Do you understand that this morning? I hope that you do, but here's the deal. All you have to do is believe. If Jesus had died as our substitute and then given us five different hoops that we needed to jump through, that would still be a pretty good deal, but that's not what he did because we'd never even make it through one hoop. He died as our substitute. And all that we need to do is to believe that he died not just for everybody else, but for you, for me. Do you trust that this morning? Is that the gospel that you've believed in? If it is, then I want you to know that you can say with confidence as that old hymn, which I think is called My Soul Has Found a Resting Place. But the chorus says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Father, I just pray that you would make us a people (laughs) that know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to every day not reach for it or try to attain it, 
or think that we have to come back to it again, but, but just to, that we'd wake up and we'd start from that place of knowing, of resting, of trusting and believing that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that our greatest need has been met. And so everything else we can face with confidence. We thank you, Father, that you who did not spare your own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will you not also along with him freely give us all things? Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us just for what it's worth. Lord, I, I know this, I, I don't, this isn't an accusation against individuals here or even just really against us, but Father, we live in the midst of a people group at this time and place in history that has preached another gospel. And Father, for our part, we want to own it and we want to repent of it. And we want to say that we're sorry. We pray, Father, that you would use us to share this good news like Philip did. That's all about Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to be sensitive to your spirit like Philip was. We pray that you would help us to open our mouths like Philip did. And to start with your sacrifice, your substitution, your slaughter on their behalf, but to share that good news, it's all about Jesus. Father, we pray for salvation in this upcoming year for many people that don't know you. We pray that we would see the gospel as the power of God into salvation in this upcoming year. Thank you for being good to us, Lord. Thank you for this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me, please.